Hey everyone, and welcome to my podcast again. Um, I'm going to continue reading this. Vampire the Start, obviously. Um, yeah. If you remember where he last left off, he his mother had come into the room after he killed the wolves and lost his dogs to the wolves, and he was going to... She was going to tell, tell him something. So yeah. With my eyes on the fire, I barely saw her climb up and sink down at the straw mattress beside me. Silence. Just the crackling of the fire and the deep respiration of the sleeping dogs beside me. Then I glanced at her, and I was vaguely startled. She'd been ill all winter with a cough, and now she looked truly sickly, and her beauty, which was always very important to me, seemed vulnerable for the first time. Her face was singular and her cheekbones perfect, very high and broadly spaced and delicate. Her jawline was strong, yet exquisitely feminine. And she had very clear cobalt blue eyes, fringed with thick ashen lashes. If there was any flaw in her, it was perhaps that all her features were too small, too kittenish, and made her look like a girl. Her eyes became even smaller when she was angry, and though her mouth was sweet, it often appeared hard. It did not turn down. It wasn't twisted in any way. It was like a little pink rose on her face, but her cheeks were very smooth and her face narrow. And when she looked very serious, her mouth, without changing at all, looked mean for some reason. Now now she was slightly sunken, but she still looked beautiful to me. She was still beautiful. I liked looking at her. Her hair was full and blonde, and and that I inherited from her. In fact, I resemble her, at least superficially, but my features are larger, cruder, and my mouth is more mobile and can be very mean at times. And you can see my sense of humor, my expression, my capacity for mischievousness and near hysterical laughing, which I've always had no matter how unhappy I was. She did not laugh often. She could look profoundly cold, yet she had always always had a little girl's sweetness. While I looked at her, she sat in my bed. I've been stared at her, I suppose, and immediately she started to talk to me. I know how it is, she said to me. You hate them because of what you've endured and what they don't know. They haven't the imagination to know what's happened to you out there in the mountain. I felt a cold delight in, the, in these words. I gave her the silent acknowledgement that she understood perfectly. It was the same the first time I bore a child, she said. I was in agony for twelve hours, and I felt trapped in the pain, knowing the only release was the birth or my own death. When it was over, I held your brother Augustine in my arms, but I didn't want anyone else near me. And it wasn't because I blamed them. It was only that I'd suffered like that, hour after hour, that I'd, that I'd gone into the circle of hell, and I felt quiet all over. They hadn't been in the circle of hell. And I felt quiet all over. In this common occurrence, this vulgar act of giving birth, I understood the meaning of utter loneliness. Yes, that's it, I answered. I was a little shaken. She didn't respond. I would have been surprised if she had. Having said what she'd come to say, she wasn't going to continue continue to converse, actually. But she did lay her hand on my forehead. Very unusual for her to do that. And when she observed that I was wearing the same bloody hunting clothes after all this time, I noticed it, too and realized the sickness of it. She was silent for a while. 
And as I sat there looking past her at the fire, I wanted to tell her a lot of things. How much I loved her particularly, but I was cautious. She had a way of cutting me off when I spoke to her. Mingled my love was a powerful resentment of her. All my life I watched her read her Italian books and scribble letters to, to people in Naples where she'd grown up. Yet she had no patience even to teach me or my brothers the alphabet. And nothing had changed after I came back from the monastery. I was 20 and I couldn't read or write more than a few prayers in my name. I hated the sign of her books. I hated her absorption in them. And in some vague way, I hated the fact that only extreme pain in me could ever wring from her the slightest warmth or interest. Yet she'd been my savior, and there was no one but her. And I, and I, and I was tired. As, I was as tired of being alone, perhaps, as a young person can be. She was here now, out of the confines of her library, and she was attentive to me. Finally, I was convinced that she wouldn't give up, get up and go away, and I found myself speaking to her. Mother, I said in a low voice, there is more to it. Before it happened, there were times when I felt terrible things. There was no change in her expression. I mean, I dream sometimes that I might kill all of them, I said. I kill my brothers and my father in the dream. I go from room to room, slaughtering them as I did the wolves. I feel in myself the desire to murder. So do I, my son, she said. So do I. And her face was lighted with the slightest, strangest smile as she looked at me. I bent forward and looked at her more closely. I lowered my voice. I see myself scream when it happens, I went on. I see my face twist into grimaces and I hear bellowing coming out of me. My mouth has a perfect O and shrieks, cries come out of me. She nodded with that same understanding look, as if a light were flaring behind her eyes. And on the mountain, mother, when I was fighting the wolves, it was a little like that. Only a little, she asked. I nodded. I felt like someone different from myself when I killed the wolves. And now I don't know who is here with you, with your son Lestat, or that other man, the killer. She was quiet for a long time. No, she said finally. It was you who killed the wolves. You're the hunter, the warrior. You're stronger than anyone else here, and that's your tragedy. I shook my head. That was true, but it didn't matter. It couldn't account for the unhappiness such as this. But what was the, the use of saying it? She looked away from a moment, then back to me. But you're many things, not only one thing. You're the killer and the man, and don't give in to the killer in you just because you hate them. You don't have to be. A, you don't have to take upon yourself the burden of murder or madness to be free of this place. Surely there must be other ways. Those last two sentences struck me hard. She had gone to the core, and the implications dazzled me. Always I had felt that I couldn't be a good human being to fight them. To be good meant to be defeated by them. Unless, of course, I found a more interesting idea of goodness. We sat still we sat still for a few moments, and there seemed an uncomfort, uncommon intimacy even for us. She was looking at the fire, scratching at her thick hair, which was wound into a circle on the back of her head. You know what I imagine, she said, looking towards me again. Not so much the murdering of them as an abandon which disregards them entirely. I imagine drinking wine until I'm so drunk I strip my clothes and bathe in the mountain stream naked. I almost laughed, but it was, it was a sublime amusement. I looked up at her, uncertain for a moment when I was hearing her correctly, but she'd said these words and she wasn't finished. 
And then I imagine going to the village, she said. And then up in the inn and taking my bed any man that come any men that come there, crude men, big men, old men, boys, just lying there and taking them one after another, and feeling some magnificent triumph and it's an absolute release without a thought of what happened to your father, your brothers, whether they are alive or dead. In that moment I am purely myself. I belong to no one. I was too shocked and amazed to say anything, but again this was terribly, terribly amusing. When I thought of my father and brothers and the pompous shopkeepers of the village and how they would respond to such a thing, I found it damn near hilarious. If I didn't laugh aloud, it was probably because the image of my mother naked made me think I shouldn't, but I couldn't keep altogether quiet. I laughed a little, and she nodded, half-smiling. She raised her eyes as if to say, We understand each other. Finally, I roared, laughing. I pounded my knee with my fist and hit my head on the wood of the bed behind me. And she almost laughed herself. Maybe in her own quiet way, she was laughing. Curious moment. Simone's brutal sense of her as a human being, quite removed from all that surrounded her. We did understand each other, and all my resentment of her didn't matter too much. She pulled the pin out of her hair and let it tumble down to her shoulders. We sat quiet for an hour after that. No more laughter or talk, just the fire blazing her near to me. She had turned so she could see the fire. Her profile, the delicacy of her nose and lips, were beautiful to look at. Then she looked back at me in the same steady voice without undue emotion, she said. I'll never leave here. I'm dying now. I was stunned. The little shop before was nothing to this. I'll live through this spring, she continued, and possibly the summer as well. But I won't survive another winter. I know. The pain in my lungs is too bad. I made some ang- little anguish sound. I think I leaned forward and said, Mother, don't say any more, she answered. I think she hated to be called Mother, but I hadn't been able to help it. I just wanted to speak it to another soul, she said, to hear it out loud. I'm perfectly horrified of it. I'm afraid of it. I wanted to take her hand, but I knew she'd never allow it. She just liked to be touched. She never put her arms around anyone, and so it was in her glances that we, that we held each other. My eyes filled with tears looking at her. She patted my hand. Don't think on it too much, she said. I don't, just only only now and then. But you must be ready to live on without me when the time comes. That may be harder for you than you realize. She tried. I tried to say something. I couldn't make the words come. She left me just to come in, silently. And though she never said anything about my clothes or my beard or how dreadful I looked, she sent the servants in with some clean clothes for me and the razor and warm water, and silently I let myself be taken care of by them. Three. I began to feel a little stronger. I stopped thinking what happened with the wolves, and I thought about her. I thought about the words perfectly horrified, and I didn't know what to make of them, except they sounded exactly true. I'd feel that way if I were dying slowly. It would have been better on the mountain with the wolves, but there was more to it than that. She'd always been silently unhappy. She hated the inertia and the hopelessness of our life as much as I did. And now, after eight children, three living, five dead, she was dying. This was the end for her. I determined to get up if I if I, if it would make her feel better, but when I tried, I couldn't. The thought of her dying was unbearable. I paced the floor of my room a lot, ate the food brought to me, but still I wouldn't go to her. But by the end of the month, visitors came to draw me out. 
My mother came in and said I must receive the merchants from the village who wanted, who wanted to honor me for killing the wolves. Oh, hell with it, I answered. No, you must come down, she said. They have gifts for you. Now do your duty. I hated all of this. When I reached the hall, I found the rich shopkeepers there, all men I knew, and all dressed for the occasion. But there was one starving young man among them I didn't recognize immediately. He was my age, perhaps, and quite tall. And when our eyes met, I remembered who he was. Nicolas de Lenfant, eldest son of the draper who had been sent to school in Paris. He was a vision now. Dressed in a slithered brocade coat of rose and gold, he wore slippers with gold heels and layers of Italian lace at his collar. Only his hair was what it used to be, dark and very curly, and boyish-looking for some reason, though it was tied back with a fine bit of silk ribbon. Parisian fashion, all this, the sort that passed as fast as it could through the local post house. And here I was to meet him in threadbare wool and scuffle their boots and yellow lace that had been seventeen times mended. We bowed to each other as he as he unwrapped the spokesman from, as he, we bowed to each other as he was apparently spokesman from the town, and then he unwrapped from his a modest covering of black serge a great red velvet coat lined in fur, gorgeous thing. His eyes were positively shiny when he looked at me. You would have thought he was looking at a sovereign. Monjuro, we beg you to take this, he said very sincerely. The finest fur of the wolves has been used to line it, and we thought it could stand you well in the winter, this fur-lined coat when you ride out to hunt. And these two, Monjuro, said his father, producing a finely shown pair of fur-lined boots and black suede. For the hunt, Monjuro, he said. I was a little overcome. They meant these gestures in the kindest way. These men, who had the sort of wealth I only dreamed of, and they paid me respect as the aristocrat. I took the cloak and the boots. I thanked them as effulsively as, as I'd ever thanked anybody for anything. And behind me, I had my brother Augustine say, Now he will really be impossible. I felt my, my face color. Outraged that he should say this in the presence of these men. But then I glanced at Nicholas de Levent, and I saw the most affectionate expression in his face. I, too, am impossible, monsieur. Sweet whispers that I gave him the parting kiss. Some day will you let me come to talk to you and tell me how you killed them all? Only the impossible can do the impossible. None of the merchants ever spoke to me like that. We were boys again for a moment, and I laughed out loud. His father was disconcerted. My brother stopped whispering. But Nicholas de Lenfant kept smiling with the Parisian's composure. As soon as they had left, I took the first... I took the red velvet cloak and the suede boots up in my mother's room. She was reading as always, while very lazily she brushed her hair. In the weak sunlight from the window, I saw gray in her hair for the first time. I told her what Nicola, Nicolas Lenfant had said. Why is he impossible? I asked her. He said this with feeling as if, he, as if it meant something. She laughed. It means something, all right, she said. He's a disgrace. She stopped looking at her book from and looked at me. Now he's been educated all his life to be a little imitation aristocrat. Well, during his first term studying law in Paris, he fell madly in love with, with the violin of all things. Seems he heard an Italian virtuoso, one of those genes from, from Padua, who was, great that, it was so great that men say he sold a soul to the devil. While Nicholas stopped, dropped everything at once to take lessons from, from Wolfgang Mozart. 
He sold his books. He did nothing but play and play until he failed his, exam his examinations. He wants to be a musician. Can you imagine? And his father is beside himself. Exactly. He smashed it. He even smashed the instrument. And you know what a good piece of expensive merchandise means to a good draper? I smiled. And so Nicholas has no violin now? He has a violin. He promptly, he promptly ran away to Claremont and sold his watch to buy another. He's impossible, all right, and the worst part of it is that he plays rather well. You've heard him? She heard, she knew good music. She grew up with it in Naples. All I'd ever heard were the church choir, the players at the fairs. I heard him Sunday when I went to the mass, she said. He was playing in the upstairs bedroom over the shop. Everyone could hear him as far as I was threatening to break his hands. I gave a little gasp at the cruelty of it. I was powerfully fascinated. I think I loved him already into doing what he wanted like that. Of course, he'll never be anything, she went on. Why not? He's too old. You can't take up with a violin when you're, when you're 20. But what do I know? He plays magically in his own way. And maybe he can sell his soul to the devil. I laughed a little uneasily. It sounded like magic. But why don't you go down to the town and make a friend of him, she asked. Why the hell would I do that? I asked. Lestat, really. Your brothers will hate it, and the old old merchant will be beside himself with joy. His son and the Marquise's son. Those aren't good enough reasons. He's been to Paris, she said. She watched me for a long moment. Then she went back to her book, brushing her hair now and then, lazily. I watched her reading, hating it. I wanted to ask her how she was, if, she, if her cough was very bad that day, but I couldn't broach the subject to her. Go on down and talk to him, Lestat, she said, without another glance at me. Four. It took me a week to make up my mind that I went out to see Nicolas de la Fent. I put on the red velvet fur-lined cloak and fur-lined suede boots, and I went down the wandy main street of the village towards the inn. The shop owned by Nicholas's father was right across from the inn, but I didn't hear or see Nicholas. I had no more than enough. I had no more than enough for one glass of wine, and I wasn't sure just how to proceed when the innkeeper came out, bowed to me, and set a bottle of his best vintage before me. Of course, these people had always treated me like the son of the Lord, but I could see that things had changed on account of the wolves. And strangely enough, this made me feel even more alone than I usually felt. But as soon as I poured the first glass, Nicholas appeared, a great blaze of color in the open doorway. He was not so finely dressed as before, thank heaven, yet, not, yet everything about him exuded wealth, silk and velvet and brand new leather. But he was flushed as if he'd been running, and his hair was windblown and messing, his eyes full of excitement. He bowed to me, waited for me to invite him to sit down, and then he asked me, What was it like, monsieur, killing the wolves? And folding his arms on the table, he stared at me. Why don't you tell me what, why don't you tell me what it's like in Paris, monsieur? I said, and I rose right away that it sounded mocking and rude. I, I'm sorry, I said immediately. I would really like to know. Did you go to the university? Did you really study with Mozart? What do people in Paris do? Do they talk? What do they talk about? What do they think? He laughed softly at the barrage of questions. I had to laugh myself. I signaled for another glass and pushed the bottle towards him. Tell me, I said. Did you go to the theaters in Paris? Did you see the Comédie Francaise? 
Many times, he answered a little dismissively, but listen, the diligence will be coming in be coming in any minute. There'll be too much noise. Allow me the honor of providing your supper in a private room upstairs. I should so like to do it. And before I can make a gentlemanly protest, he was ordering everything. We were shown up to a crude but comfortable little chamber. I was almost never in little and small rooms, and I loved it immediately. The table was laid for the meal, was laid for the meal, and that, that would come later on, but the fire was truly warm in the place, and like the roaring blazes in our castle. And the thick glass of the window was clear enough, clean enough to see the blue winter sky over the snow-covered mountains. Now I shall tell you everything you want to know about Paris, he said agreeably, waiting for me to sit first. Yes, I did go to the university. He made a little sneer as if it had all been contemptible. And I did study the Mozart, who would have told who would who would have told me I was hopeless if I hadn't need, if he hadn't needed pupils. Now where do you want me to begin? The stench of the city or the infernal noise of it, the hungry crowds that surround you everywhere, the thieves in every alley ready to cut your throat? I waved all that away. His smile was very different from his, from his tone, his manner open and appealing. A really big Paris, Paris theater, I said. Describe it to me. What is it like? And that's all I'm going to read for this episode. I'll see you guys uh, Wednesday when I read uh, when I read the Hell, Hellbound Heart for the first time. I think you guys will enjoy that, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.